Well, good morning. It's really good to be with you again. You can take a seat. Sorry. <clears throat> Pastor Jeff didn't tell me that I needed to tell you to take a seat, so <laughs> that's his fault. Um, <clears throat> good morning. It's good to be with you again. Uh, my name is Andrew Terrell, if I haven't had a chance to meet you. Um, I've had the privilege to get to be here as a guest preacher a couple of times over the last few months, and I'm really thankful to be here again, and I really mean that. Um, even just after this being my third time, I, I feel such a warm welcome. Um, I've even had multiple people tell me they, they feel like I'm starting to become part of the family, which is just so hospitable and kind of you, so thank you for that. Um, and this time, I'm thankful to be able to uh, bring my family along. They're here with me this morning, so hopefully you'll get a chance to meet them as well. Um, a little bit more context about who I am um, and how I'm connected. So I'm a minister in the Presbytery, which is the collection of regional churches, and my role is to reach international students with the gospel on the campus of Vanderbilt University. So on Vandy's campus, there are over 2,000 international students from over 100 countries. So half the nations of the world are represented right there on that campus. Um, and so that's my call, is to, to build a fellowship uh, for those international students to explore the scriptures together as we welcome them as the church. Um, but it's a great uh, joy just to get to be with you this morning and uh, share in this time of worship. So I'm going to read uh, our text for us from John chapter 14. It's printed on page 10, and we'll go from there. <clears throat> and this is Jesus speaking. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you, and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you and me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps, him, keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. Let's pray together before we dive into this text. <clears throat> Father in heaven, you promise to 
prepare a table before us for us to feast, even in the presence of our enemies. And yet here we are today gathered to worship you with our brothers and sisters in Christ. So how much more will you prepare a feast for us from your word? Many of us come needing strengthening, needing encouragement. Many of us come bringing our joys and want to celebrate your goodness. Uh, And some of us come, Lord, uh, not knowing you yet. And so I pray that you would meet each of us by your word, and would you be present in us by your Holy Spirit. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm told that we're in a sermon series, and I'm kind of jumping in to the middle of it, but it's this series looking at the final night of Jesus' life, right before the crucifixion the next day. And so the series is called Last Words. And the question then is, what would you do and say if you knew that you were going to die in 24 hours? And it's an amazing thing. It really is a wonder that the Bible actually gives us a window into those 24 hours in the life of Jesus Christ. And during this last night, especially in the Gospel of John, it's multiple chapters. So there's a lot to explore there. But Jesus says some things that are surprisingly beautiful. He says some things that are deeply comforting. He also says some things that might be confusing or unsettling to us, especially given that this is his last chance to share with his disciples. And as you know, I'm a a guest preacher, so I didn't choose this particular text uh, from this series, but again, it was assigned to me by Pastor Jeff, and I have to be honest with you, uh, this isn't the one I would have chosen if I was going to pick a text out of these few chapters in John. I'll tell you why. Um, It's a text mainly about obedience to God. And just in my natural reaction to it, I don't really... I don't gravitate towards the concept or the idea of obedience. I I don't like the idea that I need to submit myself to someone else's rules and regulations. Sort of my knee-jerk reaction to that is that it feels constraining or limiting. But we don't, this is the good thing about the fact that we don't uh, follow and teach only the parts of the Bible that we like naturally, right? We believe the, the Bible, all of it, is God's word. Every part of it is good news. And so we wrestle with all of it, even the parts that are initially challenging for us. So I hope that you'll get to experience what I've experienced this week, is that as we look at this text together, there's surprising encouragement to be found here. That obedience to God's ways really is beautiful, and there's joy there, and ironically, there's even really real freedom there. So here's how we're gonna uh, look at this text, kind of in three ways. First, the call to obedience. Second, the motivation for obedience. And third, the power for obedience. So the call, the motivation, and the power for obedience to Jesus. So again, this, this passage, um, it's a long passage, right? It took me a, a couple of minutes to read it. There's a lot of different ways we could go, but I think the main theme, if we were to look at Jesus' words, and especially the words that he repeats, is that Jesus is calling his disciples to keep his commandments. He really says this kind of five different times in five different ways, that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And so really, we begin with this simple reminder that according to Jesus, the Christian life is a call to obedience to God's commandments and to live in God's ways. And we're going to get much deeper into that, but before we do, I want to make a clarification that when we talk about the Christian life, when we talk about obedience 
to God's commandments as Christians. We're not talking about how you become a Christian, right? That's a separate conversation because no one can earn a right standing with God through obedience to his commandments. That's why God had to send his son Jesus into the world, right? That's the whole point, that through his perfect obedience, in our place, we can be forgiven by God, we can be redeemed, we can be welcomed back into his family as sons and as daughters, even as the perfect obedience of Christ is given to us or imputed to us, as the theologians say. In other words, Christianity is never primarily about our obedience. And I just want to make that clear as we start. It's always primarily about Christ's obedience and God's faithfulness to us through Christ's obedience. In other words, it's all about God's grace. So that's the broader context as we talk about obedience. But having said that, right here in our text, we have to wrestle with the fact that Jesus keeps repeating, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. What are we supposed to do with that? Why would Jesus keep reinforcing that, especially in this last night, these last little precious hours that he has with his disciples? And I think the reason is this. He's trying to teach his disciples and to teach us what it looks like to live a life of response to God's saving grace. If it's true that we've been saved by grace, how do we live in response to that? And Jesus' answer is obedience, obedience to his commandments. But as I said before, there's something about that, this idea of, of following a set of rules as a way of life that is difficult for me to swallow, and I suspect maybe for some of you as well. Um, and in particular, you know, as uh, getting to work with international students, I see a lot of different cultural perspectives. And this one seems particularly hard for Western people, for Americans. Because one of the main ideas reinforced in our culture is that the goal of life is freedom from constraints. Isn't it? We're told that uh, the most meaningful, uh, life is most meaningful when you can look deep down into yourself and discover who you truly are and then have the freedom to live out that identity. That no one can tell you who you are. You have to discover it for yourself. No set of rules can give you that. This is in almost every Disney movie made in the last 30 years. Uh, it's in lots of books. It's in lots of the TV shows we watch. <clears throat> and underneath that idea is the idea that I belong to myself. I am my own. No one has any claim on me. This is a very American idea. But friends, if you're a Christian, we have a different source of identity. Uh, we read earlier from uh, Christian catechism. There's another ancient catechism that I love. It's really beautiful. It's called the Heidelberg Catechism. Um, and the very first question in that catechism says this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So for the Christian, our most core sense of identity is not something that we discover from within, nor something is it something that we create for ourselves, even through our good works, because we belong body and soul to Jesus Christ. He's bought us with his blood, so we are his. So what then of the call to obedience and to keep Jesus' commandments? One way to think of it is like an orphan who's been adopted into a new family. See, the parents do not adopt the child because he has earned their love. That's not how adoption works. The parents adopt the child because they have chosen him and they have set their love on him. And so when the child enters a new family, do the parents say, welcome to your family. Now you're free to live however you want. 
no rules. Go have fun. No, that's not how it works, right? Probably more something like this. Welcome to your new family. You already have all of our love. And here are the expectations. Here's what it looks like to live as part of our family. It might be we treat each other with kindness. We, we, uh, we don't harm each other or ourselves, right? We, we work together to keep the house clean, right? There's a set of expectations when you come into a new family. And so the question is, is the orphan more truly free with no home and no one to guide and teach them and no one to give them rules? Or is the orphan more truly free inside the rules of this new loving family? See, if you're a Christian, you're not your own. You do not belong to yourself, but to Jesus. And therefore, Jesus can and should give you a call to obedience. And this is actually good news, right? In obedience to Jesus is where we will begin to find true freedom. So when we understand it this way, obedience is not about earning rewards for God, and it's also not about avoiding God's wrath or punishment, but we get to obey into the identity and the status that we already have. Um, Eugene Peterson has an amazing book on kind of the Christian life, specifically using this idea of obedience. It's called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction, which is an awesome title. And here's a quote from that book. He says, Obedience is not a stodgy plodding in the ruts of religion. It is a hopeful race towards God's promises. It's not a stodgy plodding in the ruts of religion. It's a hopeful race towards God's promises. So yes, in obedience, there's action and there's effort and there's self-sacrifice, right? It's a long pilgrim road that we're on. But as we obey, but we obey as those who are already adopted into God's family in the hopeful race toward the fulfillment of all of God's promises. We journey as pilgrims toward the home that Jesus has already secured and built for us. Probably many of you are familiar with uh, um, the famous Olympic snowboarder, Sean White. He's the one with the big, crazy red hair. I think his hair's short now, actually. Looked up a picture of him. Uh, But in the 2010 Olympics, so not too long ago, but showing my age a little bit, uh, he was dominating the half-pipe event. And the half-pipe event is the one where a snowboarder You know, it's basically like a big shell, and they go up one side, do a trick, come down, go up the other side, and do a trick until they get to the bottom of the slope. Um, And in the final round of the half-pipe event, you get to do three runs down the slope, and then you keep your highest score of the three. And so at the very end of this competition, at the end of the Olympics, uh, all the snowboarders had already gone, and Sean White was last, and he just had one more run to complete. He'd done his first two. But here's the thing. With the, with the previous score that he'd gotten, he'd already won the gold medal. He already had it in the bag. So it didn't really matter how he performed on this last run, right? And so as he lined up to go, the commentators start asking, you know, maybe, maybe he'll just slide right down the middle. He won't even do any tricks. He won't take any risks. He's already got the gold medal. What's the point? But instead, and you should go back and find this on YouTube, he competed as if he was still going for the gold, right? On that last run, he actually attempted a trick that had never before been completed in the Olympics. That's kind of a funny name. It's called a double McTwist 1260. Don't ask me what that means. And you know what? He landed it perfectly. And many people still argue that this is the best 
trick to ever be completed in the history of competitive snowboarding. So how was he able to pull this off? I think it's because he already had the gold, right? Going down the half pipe, knowing that his status was secure, enabled him to perform with freedom and with confidence and even with joy. And so when Jesus says to us, if you love me, you will obey my commandments, what he's saying is, you're already adopted into my family. You've already been given my perfect righteousness. You have the gold medal. I've already secured a name for you, a home and a name for you at the end of this pilgrim road. So does that mean you should just cruise down the slope without trying? Or what if instead you allowed this status that's been earned on your behalf, been given to you to empower you to then turn around and give everything you've got to Christ, to the Christian life, to obedience with a totally new sense of freedom? See, Jesus doesn't command us to obey so that we can earn his love, so that we can prove ourselves to, to him. He invites us to obey so that we can become our truest, freest selves in loving him and loving others. See, the call to a life of obedience is not an easy call, but it's the beautiful life that we were made for. <clears throat> so before we move on to our, our next point, we, we also need to ask, what are the commandments that Jesus is asking us to follow? Right? Uh, on the one hand, this maybe sounds like a cop-out answer, but on the one hand, the answer is the whole Bible, right? All of the Bible offers wisdom for life and commands for how to live. But someone actually did once ask Jesus, um, what, are, what are the commandments? How would you summarize them, Jesus? Maybe you're familiar with this story. It's in three of the different Gospels. In Matthew 22, it's recorded that Jesus said it this way. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and prophets. In other words, this is the essence of God's commands. In all that you do, love God and love other people. And so as Christians, we must regularly ask ourselves, what are the ways that my life is out of accord with God's commands? Where am I falling short of loving God and loving my neighbor? And again, we don't do this to earn God's approval or avoid his punishment, so that we can live more fully into his design for us and for the world. And this brings us to our second point, which is the motivation for obedience to God. We've looked at what we should do, but why should we do it? So notice again that whenever Jesus uh, talks about keeping commandments, he also talks about loving him. It's attached to it. Verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Verse 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And so our motivation for obeying God is not to gain rewards, but it's also not fear. Jesus seems to be saying it's simply because we love him. That's why he wants us to obey him. And here's the thing about obedience. You and I, whether we're aware of it or not, are actually already obeying whatever it is that we love the most. This is how the human heart works. We obey what we love. Let me explain. Um, we're prone to love other things more than God. This is just our human nature, right? We're prone to love comfort and convenience more than God. We're prone to love money and material things 
We're prone to love control and power. We're prone to love pleasure and self-gratification more than God. And you will always obey what you love. So in your heart of hearts, if you love comfort and convenience, what happens is it will become your master. And in time, you will become a slave to pleasure and to ease, and it will control the ways that you interact with other people, with the world around you, and with God. Or if you most deeply love money and material things, those things will slowly gain power over you. And you will grow to live in the bondage of money's demands, and you'll always want more. So you're welcome to poke fun at me, but I've recently started rereading The Lord of the Rings. Yes, I'm one of those. Um, Many of you are probably familiar with the books or the movies. Um, At the center of the story, though, is what? The one ring of power. And this ring has the ability to give its owner incredible strength and power over others. Right? The problem, though, is that the idea of being the ring's owner is actually a deception. Because this ancient ring was made by the Dark Lord. And in reality, what happens is the ring slowly becomes the master of whoever wears it. It takes over their desires. It strips away their humanity. You know the story, right? Near the end, Frodo is just a a thin shred of himself after bearing this burden. And friends, this is what happens to us whenever anything other than God's love for us and our love for God is at the center of our hearts because you obey what you love and what you love becomes your master. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, makes this exact same point in Romans 7. He says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But by asking us to obey his commandments, Jesus is inviting us into the one relationship of obedience that won't enslave us, but will actually give us true freedom. Every other master, whether it's money, comfort, control, you know your heart better than I do. Those masters ask for your love and your obedience. And at first, right, there's a payoff, right? There's an initial promise that they will return to you what you give to them. But in the end, all other masters leave you with nothing. And maybe you've experienced that firsthand with whatever it is. But obeying God works the other way around. God's economy works in reverse. Uh, Let's look at verse 23 again. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. So we have to read this carefully because when we do, we'll see that Jesus is not talking about the cause of the Father's love. He's not saying, my Father will begin to love you if you keep my word. We know this can't be true, right? Because the same author who wrote this book, John, also wrote 1 John 4, where he says, this is love, not that we've loved God, but that he loved us. And later in that chapter, he says, we love because he first loved us. So God's love is always the first cause. So what Jesus must be talking about in verse 23 is not the cause of the Father's love, but the enjoyment of the Father's love. He's saying when we obey him, we're actually leaning into the enjoyment of the love from the Father that we already have, the delight from the Father that's already ours. 
And so based on this text, we can actually go a step further. When we obey God, we're doing something mysterious. We're actually entering into the life of the Trinity itself. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in eternity in a mutual relationship of love to one another. One God and three persons. And this is a mystery, but Jesus seems to be saying, as we follow in his ways, we actually participate in this divine dance of love. We're welcomed into this economy. Look at verses 20 and 21. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will manifest myself to him. Do you see how obedience to Christ brings us into the life of love within the triune God? I don't know how to explain that. That's just what Jesus is saying happens. And here's the point for us. If you're a Christian, Jesus has placed a call to obedience on your life, and the motivation to obey him is simply love, that he has loved us first and that we respond in obedient love to him. Um, I mentioned earlier that, or maybe I didn't, that I have three sons. Did I mention that? I do have three sons, whether I mentioned it or not. One's right here. Here he is. He's the oldest. No fear. And of course, as a dad, I want my sons to obey me, right? I want them to follow what I ask for them to do. And I hate to admit it, but oftentimes, in those moments when I really need them to obey me, it can be easy to fall into motivating them with shame, right? And the thing is, that actually works pretty well in the short term. But in the long term, that does not cultivate in them a desire to obey me in response out of their love. But on the other hand, I've noticed when I actually take the time and the energy to connect with them, to get on their level, to show them my love for them, to patiently encourage them in a life of obedience, they begin to want to obey more readily out of uh, their, their experience of my love for them, right, in response to that. And friends, I'm such an imperfect father, but our heavenly father is infinitely better Right? He delights. His delight for us, I should say, overflows. His patience with us never runs dry. His plans and his purposes for us are so much better than what we can imagine. And so he gives us his commandments because he loves us. He knows what's best for us and he wants to see us flourish. He's not a severe tyrant, as we often imagine, but he's a loving father. And that is the source of our motivation to obey him. And so this brings us to our our last point, and it'll be our shortest point as well. We've seen Jesus' call to obedience, and that God's love is the motivation to follow that call. But if we're honest, at this point, we just need to admit that obedience is really hard. It's really hard. If you've been a Christian for any significant amount of time, you'll know by experience that the pilgrim road to following in Jesus' footsteps is marked with many failures. As we try to obey, discouragement in our weakness and in our sin often knocks us off the path again and again. But Jesus is not surprised by this. In fact, I like to imagine this is exactly what was going through the disciples' minds as Jesus begins this passage in uh, verse 
15 and starts talking to them about obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commands. That's how he starts. And I can just see their faces falling as they're starting to grasp the fact that, oh, Jesus really is going to leave us soon. And he expects us to have the power to obey him in his absence. But as Jesus always does, he anticipates their thoughts and even their discouragements with his next statement. So read along in verse 16. He says, immediately, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And so do you hear what Jesus immediately follows up his call to obedience with? He's saying, I'll never leave you alone. And here's how. I'm sending the Holy Spirit to you. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity, right? I'm sending God to come and be with you in my place as, even as I leave. And the word here translated as helper in verse 16 is the word parakletos, which is a beautifully rich word. When you look it up, it's one of those that has like 10 meanings, right? Comforter, advocate, counselor, intercessor, right? The Holy Spirit's job is to mediate Jesus' very presence with us and to give us an experience of his presence with us. And there's even more than that. Jesus doesn't promise to send the Spirit occasionally in times of need, right? He sends the Holy Spirit to be with us and dwell in us forever. That's the promise, And Jesus also promises to the disciples that he will come again and be physically with them in the new heavens, in the new earth, in the resurrection, right? But until that time, he will not leave us alone. And so here's the good news. Jesus does not give us just the motivation to obey. He actually gives us the power to obey, not by a new technique that we can try out, but by his own constant personal presence with us through the Holy Spirit. He knows our weakness. He knows our need. He knows our tendency to fall again and again off that pilgrim road. He knows that even if we had all the best motivation in the world to obey him, we so often still lack the power and the strength within ourselves alone. And so he promises not to leave us alone. Uh, You see specific ways that Jesus sends the Spirit to care for us in our weakness and need in this passage. In verse 26, Uh, Jesus knows that we lack the knowledge and wisdom in how to obey him every day. So he says, the Holy Spirit will teach us all things, right? He gives us the Holy Spirit for our continual growing in understanding and wisdom. He knows that what wisdom and knowledge we do have, we're going to constantly forget. And so he also says in verse 26 that the Holy Spirit will bring to remembrance everything that Jesus has said. And I think that's specifically true of the disciples needing Jesus to bring to remembrance what he said for them to write down the scriptures. But I think it's still true for us today. We constantly need the Spirit to help us to remember, to remember who we are, to remember whose we are, to remember the truth. And Jesus also knows that we fear, above all things, being alone, being abandoned. And so he says in verses 17 and 18 that the Spirit will not just come to us, but will dwell in us, will be with us, will never leave us. So what does this mean for day-to-day life 
for you and me as, as followers of Jesus, as pilgrims on the road, I think it means mainly we can just have great confidence that God is always at work in our lives, that he's never leaving us alone. And this is true because of his love for us and through the presence of his Holy Spirit with us. So we can call on him, right? We can go to him. We have immediate and constant access to God by what Jesus has earned on our behalf and through the presence of the Holy Spirit with us. So not only does God, in the beginning of, you know, of our salvation, secure our salvation and redemption by his grace, but then he empowers us to live for him by his grace in the day-to-day. It's all grace from start to finish. <clears throat> and so there's deep joy and freedom to be found in obeying Christ, right? Hopefully you've seen that as I have this week, but you can't do it alone. First, you need God to give you a new heart through the forgiveness that can only be found through Christ's death on the cross. And then you need God to send his Holy Spirit to give you the power to obey Christ every day. And the amazing thing is God freely gives us both of those things. The Christian life is all by grace from start to to finish. May God be praised. Let's pray. God, our Father, from before the beginning of time, you knew that we would need you to come to us. And so you ordained to send your son, Jesus, into the world to secure the forgiveness of our sins to not just set for us an example of obedience, but to actually be obedience in our place. God, you also knew that even after we had that redemption, we would still need your grace day in and day out in our struggles, in our struggles to obey and to be faithful, to stay on the path. And so you've promised your Holy Spirit to us. We confess that we so often forget We're so often inattentive to the very real presence of the Holy Spirit with us. I pray that you would just remind us today and this week that we have the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit with us, strengthening us, encouraging us, teaching us, bringing the truth to remembrance in us to help us on this pilgrim walk as we obey Christ in our lives. Thank you, God. We worship and praise you for your grace from beginning to end. In Jesus' name. Amen.